Welcome to Profitable Python. This is your host, Ben McNeil. On this episode, you will meet Matt McKay. Matt is a software developer with an affinity for Python and Swift. He currently runs Twilio's Developer Voices team, which enables developers to teach other developers how to get started and build with Twilio. Matt is also the author of Full Stack Python, which he helps over 150,000 developers per month learn to build, deploy, and operate their Python web applications. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Ben. Indeed. All right. Uh, so I was just checking out your uh, Twitter recently. You had donated to Boca. Uh, what was your motivation for that? Oh, sure. So I, I love that data visualization tool. Uh, I actually came across it first at PyCon in 2015. Okay. Uh, I saw a demo. Sarah Bird gave a fantastic live demo of just creating visualizations with it. And it was still pretty uh, like rough, a lot of rough edges on the tool. Um, it's come a long way since then. And uh, they've had their like 1.0 release. So a lot more stability with it. Um, but I just was like, wow, this is, this is great for creating really quick the data visualizations. Um, I previously used uh, D3JS mm -hmm. and uh, a bunch of other processing, a bunch of other tools. And it's like, those are fantastic tools, but they are, uh, they take a long time just to get everything right. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw Bokeh, I was like, this is, this is unbelievable. Uh, and so I don't know, I've just used the tool a lot and I was like, well, they're running, you know, every month they try to like raise some money. And I just think that there's not enough money going into open source software development. Like so many developers are working so hard and um, not that like independent people should be the ones who are like contributing. Like I actually think it should be corporations that are contributing a lot more if they're using the tools, but I just wanted to, you know, give back a little bit, um, especially cause uh, I've, I've used the tool quite a bit myself. Awesome. Yeah. That, that actually leads me right into my next question is uh, what, do you have any advice for people to maybe try and get their employers in, involved with the support. I mean, I know my boss, like he probably doesn't even know. I try to explain to him how awesome Python is in, in the ecosystem, but I mean, in the end, he just wants results. Like he, he just, yeah. Do you have any advice on that? Uh, you know, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think that it, it depends on the culture at each company. So uh, there are plenty of companies that, you know, try to give back uh, some time for their employees to, to work on some tools. Okay. Uh, there's other companies, you know, that, that um, uh, will just give monetary support. I do think that uh, one thing I've seen be relatively successful in more conservative cultures is um, just bringing up examples where other companies are supporting those projects. Um, and especially like if there's anything that can be um, attributed to, uh, like open source, a lot, a lot of times the two main business reasons for doing open source are, uh, recruiting. Uh, so number one saying like, this can really help our recruiting team. So you may have luck going through your recruiting team saying, Hey, if we sponsor this open source project, we use it extensively at our company. Um, maybe it'll help us to, you know, really get our name out there as a company that's using this. Um, the other reason is like product adoption. So think like Kubernetes, um, getting companies on, uh, Google cloud and, um, and making the cloud, you know, the cloud platforms more agnostic. So there's like different reasons why open source exists. So I think just figuring out like, what is your company doing with open source? And then saying like, are there other companies that are similar companies that are already contributing to open source in some way? Um, and I mean, I always find that like 
you know, if there's some sort of marketing budget or there's some recruiting budget, like carving that out for a specific purpose of, of supporting projects, um, Mm -hmm. is, is important. Um, you know, the downside is like a lot of times it's hard to figure out who to even sponsor, right? Like for a lot of smaller, Mm -hmm. that's why I think like the work that like numb focus is doing, where they have like an, um, they're an umbrella, you know, nonprofit. Um, so you can support a lot of the, the data science projects. Like that's really useful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. A lot of it just comes down to the culture of your own company and what is going to resonate with the managers. And the answer might be like nothing (laughs) is unfortunate. Uh, but you know, that's, you know, that's, that's how it is in a lot of cases and kind of where we are with open source funding. Yeah. I know it really, I mean, without open source, I just kind of reflect on it. It's like, I don't even know. We, we would be like decades behind where we currently are. Is that, is that kind of your feeling on the matter or how, how yeah, would you, I mean, everything that I've learned in the past, like 15 years has basically been because of open source, like being, I wouldn't be a, nearly as uh, you know, good developer if I didn't have open source examples to take a look at and, and build from, and obviously even just use, I mean, there's like the using the tools and then there's just like digging into the code base and being like, Oh wow. Like I never thought about coding something like that. That's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And then you just, right. So there's, it's not just the open source is the foundation of most companies stacks. Uh, it's also that like people can learn from it as well. So I don't know. I mean, I know there's like culture wars and open source and originally open source was much more like when it was really being formed at, at MIT, uh, that culture, um, you know, it was much more about like not taking credit for your work and it's a collective community effort. Um, I think it's shifted a little bit now where you have the big names in open source and, and the big companies that support open source. I don't know if that's like better or worse, mm-hmm. um, but certainly just the concept. Obviously, I don't think anyone could argue that like open source has not been a net massive good for the world. Sure. Uh, That's just kind of the way that I look at it. Yeah, that's awesome. Hopefully, hopefully the trend or the trajectory continues to keep going in that direction. So I mean, if if every company that was using open source supported open source in in, in a more reasonable fashion, uh, you know, it would be much further along. So that I think is really where we want to, that's, that's kind of the next step to me is like every company or 90% of companies out there are supporting open source, even if it's just, um, you know, putting a line item into their budget and saying like, yeah, this is, this is earmarked for open source. Uh, mm-hmm. Not to say that, can't, I mean, that could create other problems, right? You could have people going into open source just because they want to siphon off that money. Um, but you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I think we're very far away from, from that happening. <laughs> Nice. Uh, and I guess just last question around this uh, theme here is like, what would the world look like you think if everybody was, you know, devoting their time and money, I guess, into, into open source? Like, do we, yeah. What do you think the world would look like? Uh, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. Um, I, I just think that, uh, I, you know, I, I've never, I've literally never thought about that before. Um, I think that companies would probably be much more aware of their, their um, people in companies, like you're saying, like, you know, managers and stuff, I think would be more aware that like, if every company was giving back to open source, like you just, that's just a normal thing to do. Like your developers should spend part of their time, at least open sourcing some of their work um, and, and just allowing people to, um, become better developers. 
Um, that's, that's really what I've seen in a lot of companies back when I was doing consulting before I joined Twilio. It was like people get into kind of their own little like holes and they can't get out of it because they're like, you know, working on one project. It's not, it's not open source. It's not taking examples from other projects. Um, and they, their, their view of development becomes very biopic, especially if you're in a proprietary tech stack. Um, and then unfortunately, like a lot of developers who focus their time on proprietary tech stacks, they tend to um, not have a ton of marketable skills once those companies get acquired and, and they're not, you know, pushed anymore. Um, so I think that's, it's just part of it is like the sustainability of open source itself, but it's also sustainability for the developers who, um, who work and try to constantly improve their, their skill sets. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Um, I, I was actually just switching gears here a little bit. Where did the curiosity come from for that Code Across America project that you did? I, I was reading a lot of articles on there. And uh, yeah, I just kind of want to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So uh, Coding Across America was essentially a, a self-defined five-month road trip around the country to 30 different cities. Um, I had primarily had my professional work experience in, uh, in East Coast, specifically like around Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of major cities, D.C. is a bubble and it's like focus on the government. Uh, just like New York has like a lot of finance focus. San Francisco is very like tech um, heavy. L.A. is, is uh, you know, the, the, the film industry. Uh, I just wanted to get out there and talk to developers that I really respected, um, that I had read, you know, a lot of their, uh, either their code or blog posts that they had put out and just ask them like, Hey, what's it like to be a developer, uh, in like Memphis? Uh, what's it like to be a developer in Austin, Texas, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, get a good mix of like really tiny cities, uh, like, you know, Missoula, Montana, uh, versus, you know, San Francisco, which sort of Bay area, everyone sort of associates with tech. Um, so for me, it was more about just like kind of understanding what was, what was out there, what challenges people face, what is, what is the same about working as a software developer in Washington, DC, uh, and San Francisco. Uh, some people would think like, Oh, nothing, but there's, there are still a lot of similarities. Um, there's a lot of differences, but there's similarities as well. So yeah, a lot of it was just getting out there. And I think, uh, to me, like I was fortunate that I, I, uh, I did two master's degrees while working full time before I did my road trip. And I almost feel like my road trip, this project that I did was like uh, a third master's degree in my own sort of self-defined area of study. Um, and so I learned a ton from it, but also I produced like a whole website with a blog and pictures and, you know, there was a ton of stuff I learned that I didn't even put on there. Uh, but it allowed me to just kind of have something that I would dive into as a, as a big project for that year. Um, mm. and it, uh, it, it worked really well for me. I mean, as far as like just giving me focus to, to learn some new skills, talk to some new people and, um, just, just get out there. Yeah. That, I mean, I just kind of wonder, it, it almost sounds like the beginnings of like a documentary or something like that. <laughs> Did you ever get approached by like a film crew or? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's almost like a little bit esoteric. It's like okay. every time almost every software developer that I talked to was like, Whoa, that is awesome. And like, I also, I also happened to like, I, I still worked uh, part-time remotely on software development projects. Like I okay. remember deploying to production at like, you know, two o'clock in the morning <laughs> in Detroit on a project I was working on. And like, you know, it was like, I was still doing software development while road tripping and talking to people. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it's pretty esoteric unless you are a software developer to like think about, you know, those sorts of topics. So. Okay. That might be part of the reason why people aren't. 
the people that aren't software developers are like road tripping is cool road tripping to talk to software developers is not cool, no, like, cool. I, for me <laughs> i thought it was awesome yeah I had a great time <laughs> and like and also too it's like if you road trip for five months straight like you can get kind of lonely mm. uh talk to people and learn from them and like you know just go out for coffee with somebody that you've literally never met before but you are both python developers you know you you have something in common that's like it makes you feel like you're not just kind of like out there floating yeah no that's awesome uh i i was reading in some article online uh basically you were talking you were wanting to well basically what you're just saying like you you ha- you knew the DC scene. You wanted to see what was going on out there in the, in the other worlds, and then possibly bring some of that back to DC, and then enhance the scene. How did that? How did all the cards kind of fall with that? Or yeah, for sure. Um, so I when I got back to DC was when I talked to some folks from I'd met a bunch of folks from Twilio uh, mm-hmm. around the country, uh, and Twilio was relatively small at that point. It was like maybe 150 people or so. I've only been around for a few years, but um, I really thought they were awesome. And they were like, hey, would you be a develop? Would you be interested in being a developer evangelist in DC? Mm-hmm. Assuming I got through all the interviews. So <laughs> got through all the interviews and all that stuff, you know, the flight out to San Francisco. And, um, and so I really, um, a lot of it was just about, I, I was basically able to make that in some ways, like my full-time job it was like okay. trying to be DC a better development scene. I think the challenge with that is that, um, DC is a large place and you need, uh, you also have a lot of like institutional sort of like, uh, I don't know, institutional headwinds, bureaucracy. Um, really the challenge is like DC is not going to be a great place for software developers until people realize that like, um, the reason why DC is not great with a lot of software projects. Like I've worked on, I've worked on like hundred million dollars, like spent a hundred million dollars on software projects that like, never shipped anything to production and it's just like mm-hmm. horrifyingly terrible to me like wow. people like dozens hundreds of people pouring their hearts and souls into like building a software project that like mm-hmm. never gets used mm-hmm. like that's so awful and then you have like small tech companies in san francisco that are able to you know like and not just san francisco there's pl- plenty of other cities where this is true but like uh, you know, that they're able to build something, get it out there, ship it, iterate, um, you know, it is, and this was like before, like the lean, the lean startup was very popular. Like, I mean, that was sort of like had just been released. Like Eric Ries was just sort of talking about those, those principles. So I think there just wasn't like a recognition of like the way that software could be built. And I actually still think that's true in DC. Hmm. Uh, I think there's just so much like big, big project thinking waterfall thinking that people call everything agile around DC and like, it's still waterfall. Like they've just changed the names of what they call things. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's actually going to change. I, I, I it, uh, this is like, everyone always wants like a simple answer to really hard problems. Like, I guess if I had a simple answer to the problem of like all these projects, like failing in DC and still failing, it's that like, there are ultimately too many people that don't know anything about software development making decisions about software development. Hmm. Like you wouldn't have someone who is a, not a doctor or never been trained in like medicine operating on you. And yet we have the equivalent in software. And so I think in San Francisco, at least there is a recognition that like you kind of cut your teeth on being a developer before you become a VC, before you start your company, before you do X, Y, and Z. Like, technical skills and keeping your technical skills sharp is like really important. Hmm. Uh, I mean, a good case is like, like I was actually just looking at some Python code for uh, the, 
the signal keynote, uh, Twilio signal conference keynote. And like Jeff Lawson, who's our, one of our co-founders and, and current CEO, we're like, you know, I don't know how many people we are now, like over 2000, like he's going to be live coding on stage and he's still like a great software developer. <laughs> like, like it, that still has respect. And in DC, like people don't respect software development in that way. And so mm. not surprising to me that things are so inefficient. So anyway, that was a super long winded way of trying to answer your question of like, did I feel like I made much change in DC? And I would say like, not really. Like it's actually like virtually impossible to like change the system here. Okay. <laughs> uh, the only, my only hope is that like with Amazon bringing a bunch of folks, I think what might actually help change the system uh, is that like Amazon is hiring a lot of software developers in DC and will be over the next few years. Mm -hmm. And if they pay them a lot more than current government places, like I've talked to people who work in government, they're really worried like, Oh, they're going to steal my best software developers. And I'm just like, good. Like maybe if things mm -hmm. continue to, harder and harder and harder and every year things get worse like maybe people will say like hey actually like we completely need to change the way that we're operating here maybe not mm. i don't know yeah we'll we'll see how that goes that's uh that's definitely an interesting uh just a, a whole interesting concept there what's what's going on um kind of i guess the the segue from that would be from your learnings did you did you, do you have any recommendations for like uh like building a tech scene in a smaller city or did you do you have any ideas on that yeah for sure uh well so uh i i feel like i had pretty good relationships with folks in in des moines iowa and actually my parents moved to des moines iowa for a few years while i like actually right around the time i was doing my road trip so i met a ton of people around there and they were awesome and i think the uh the challenge is like just building a critical mass um and so i think that like it requires a core group of small people, uh, small people, a small <laughs> core group of people um, mm -hmm. that are basically dedicated to that community uh, and have a good balance between what I've seen not work well is like people who focus too much on community uh, and don't focus enough on their companies. Mm -hmm. I think that happens like quite a bit in like some of the Midwestern cities that I've seen, like they focus on like building this great like community and like they kind of have some energy around it. And then like, nothing really sustains that over time. Like you have to get investment. There's so much money sloshing around like in VC investments and stuff like that. And like understanding what, who your customers are and like why you're there is really important. So like if you're doing agricultural tech and you're in Des Moines or in Kansas city or, you know, somewhere in the Midwest, like that seems like a good fit to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're trying to create the next consumer based startup, like, well, you're probably going to be competing with a lot of companies that are in the Bay area. So like focusing on a niche where, um, you know, Bay area companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars in VC funding are never going to be able to compete with you uh, unless they actually like literally pack up and move to your city. Mm -hmm. um, like that, that to me is like the, the only sort of like winning strategy of a core group of people really focus on solving certain problems for companies that are based in that area. Uh, and then, uh, not that you have to get VC investment, but you build success from that. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's the only thing that I've seen be relatively successful. There are some examples of companies that uh, I think if you look at Madison, Wisconsin and Epic, what they've been able to do with healthcare, uh, medical, electronic, electronic medical, medical records, like um, not to say that that could only happen in Madison, but they've been mm -hmm. able to build a really great scene there based off of the, the work that they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of parallelisms between like the camaraderie around the community, and then if you're if you 
keep going with me here. It's kind of like, okay, well, open source has a place in there. And then also getting people kind of uh, acquainted with like software development, like the struggles you were talking about in DC where the higher ups kind of are, there's like a link in the chain missing or something. It's like, it's cra- it's crazy how they're all that interrelation seems to, I mean, it, ju- it just seems to be prolific. Like, like how, um, Man, it, I I think we have some good things happening, right? Like, is that a? Well, I almost feel like there's not like a there's not a missing link in the chain. There's okay, actually, yeah. There's, there's too many links in the chain. There's too many links. <laughs> yeah, so you have the folks that are really trying to make decisions off of budget, non connected mm-hmm. people that actually understand how the work can be executed or not. There's mm-hmm. so many times when I worked on projects where I was like, who? How, how did this project happen? Like, it's literally impossible to build. Like it was so clear that no one who ever had experience with software development had ever looked at the, the project charter or anything. And I was just like, mm-hmm. you're literally like, you might as well just create a document that says impossible and just like hand it to people. <laughs> like to me, that tells me there's too many links in the chain, right? Like okay. the people's decisions are disconnected from the people who are actually executing and, and understand what is possible, what's not possible. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, in the Midwest, uh, I don't, I don't know if I want to necessarily focus on the Midwest, but in smaller cities, uh, you know, I just think that the good part for smaller cities is like, if you're, if you're a group of software developers and you feel like you can attract software developers, um, based off of what you're working on, um, you don't need, you know, what you need is, is usually just to, to go and execute, um, and work with the companies that are nearby, um, and leverage your like geographic advantage. Um, and don't worry about like sort of the, the decision makers in, in a lot of cases, I, I will say one really, um, powerful recruiting advantage though, that a uh, smaller city that you can, you can try to have is, um, attract people who are sort of like, uh, they've been say in a larger city, um, but they're originally from your smaller city and they're, you know, they're, they're out of school five, 10 years, they're thinking maybe, maybe start a family or maybe this, this pace of life is just working 90 hours a week is too crazy. Mm-hmm. And then start talking to them about, Hey, like there's actually a really great, you know, scene here and this small city where you grew up, you can usually attract talent, um, based off of like a little bit of nostalgia and, uh, and, and hmm. people that they don't have to stay in a really large city, um, in order to be able to have a, a reasonable career. Yeah, that's, that's excellent advice. Um, so do you think, do you think that every kind of like city center is capable of building a tech scene or is there something to be said for like recognizing, okay, this area of the planet has this niche tech scene. We're better off just picking up and moving shop type thing. Or what, how do you feel about that whole, whole concept? Yeah. So there's like different, different ways to look at it. There's like the city angle. So I see a lot of cities that are like, we want to be the next Silicon Valley. It's like, you will never be the next Silicon Valley because whatever Silicon Valley is today or whatever it was 10 years ago is going to be different 10 years from now. And you're not going to be able to like, if you're aiming to be what another city is today, you will be behind even if you ever get there, which you probably will not. Mm-hmm. Uh, city angle is like, I, I just don't really understand all these efforts and initiatives for cities like like the dc government spent like a half a million dollars to send a bunch of people to south by southwest like i just don't understand how it's a good use of our taxpayer dollars when Mm -hmm. very clear that like like what did they gain from that like there was just nothing it's just like seems they they spent 
hundreds of millions, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on opening this uh, tech accelerator 1776. I have never heard a single success story out of that place. Hmm. Like it's, it's just crazy to me that cities try to spend this like time and effort when what they probably should be doing is saying like, Hey, like how do we lower taxes for, you know, anyone that is trying to get started rather than raising taxes on a lot of people. And then like thinking somehow by offering, you know, free office space, it's going to be useful. I don't know. It's just weird to me. So, so the, the, um, the city Hmm. angle, I just don't, I don't understand. I've never seen that be successful. Um, for the company angle, I think that every company has to understand what their you know, unique, sustainable, competitive advantage is uh, and why they are in the location that they're in. Or even like an established company, why do you open a new office in a certain area? Uh, I don't know. Like that, that to me is really what, it's, what it comes down to is like, um, I think any city, regardless of size, uh, has the unique attributes that allow it to, you know, potentially foster some sort of like technology ecosystem because technology covers every industry now, Mm -hmm. uh, especially software. So that's why I talk about examples like ag tech or like, um, you know, government like finance, FinTech is, is in New York, uh, or government for DC. Uh, There's just like a recognition that like people do have expertise in a certain field. uh, And if you combine that expertise with software development and have respectful interactions like good things can potentially come out of that Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the way that i uh i see like location interacting with starting you know a tech scene sure yeah that's i think that's great information we have a little accelerator uh place in farmington new mexico uh where i'm from and uh yeah they these concepts have kind of come up we have oil and gas there which is huge on the iot and uh, I was even checking out, there were some Twilio projects where you guys will send like SIM cards, I guess. To, yeah. To yeah. It's called wireless. We've got, we've got developer kits too uh, for building okay. like um, for building uh, IOT projects and stuff like that. Like we actually like have some hardware and we have a great partnership uh, with Microsoft um, to, to build a lot of IOT applications. So there's, there's actually like a ton of cool stuff that's possible there, but you were saying for, for oil and gas, that's like, that's a big deal. Yeah, I could I could totally see something like that being leveraged to like um we ha- we have some situations where stuff's just like out in Podunk, New Mexico and um like sometimes reception is really bad. It's not really cost effective to build the infrastructure like cell towers and stuff. So um yeah, I just kind of wonder like with with the whole kind of the trajectory that IoT is going like um, maybe that place could be like some sort of a, a tech hub. So that's kind of, I was like kind of like secretly like, okay, how can I get some ideas to maybe like jumpstart things there? But yeah, I think, I think you have a lot of value to offer with um, uh, your insights on that. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen successful so far in that, in like the IoT space has just been, how do we gather data that we've never been able to gather before that is super valuable? And then if you just aggregate that data, um, and offer it for analysis or consumption in some way or visualization, uh, like that alone can be a very lucrative uh, outcome. Um, so hmm. that's like breaking through like a lot of the, you know, corporate marketing speak of Internet of Things. What I've seen successful so far is when people focus on solving a problem where they, they're like, you know, 10 years ago, we could never get, gather this data or not gather it 
economically, certainly. Mm-hmm. But today, with you know, widespread uh, different types of connectivity, it doesn't just have to be cell connectivity. There can be you know all sorts of like narrowband things like that. Um, gather the data, and then a lot of times it's like build a simple web application or a simple web API. Mm-hmm. Uh, or do a little analysis and, and have the output be a web API and like, boom, like if you can offer that as a product, um, to, you know, a lot of times it's like, it's not just like oil and gas companies. It could be like hedge funds, right? Like they're, they are trying, there's thousands of hedge funds out, hedge funds out there, financial institutions that are trying to do analysis on oil and gas. It's a you know, huge investment uh, industry, like offering that up to them as an alternative data source is like a pretty proven strategy for, um, you know, building, building at least a small company around. Hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's exciting stuff. I, <laughs> you're passionate about your job as a developer advan- evangelist. And, uh, I, I, the feeling is mutual kind of like in my space. I, uh, it's, I don't, I don't know. I just love it. I don't know what it is, but, uh, I do love the petroleum uh, engineering, but uh, my my question to you is: What would the world do without developer evangelists? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, so I will also caveat this with: I am not currently a developer evangelist anymore. Right, I was mm-hmm. a developer evangelist. Uh, now uh, I run a team, Developer Voices, which um, our team is focused on enabling developers that are don't work at Twilio uh, to help other teach other developers. So it's like, it's almost like a step removed. It's like we're enabling other people to be evangelists. Okay. Uh, and so that they can improve their own. Like one of the great parts about being a developer evangelist is like you tend to raise like your profile uh, in development community and, and find out more opportunities that are out there. And really just like uh, if you're open to, to it, like you can be like such a sponge for information because people will tell you about all sorts of stuff that they're working on because you just happen to be out there mm. and um a lot of exciting things and asking questions. Um, so the developer evangelism field is interesting uh, in that like developer marketing is like a fairly nascent field um, and very few companies really use it um, primarily because uh, you know developer tool, it's, it's mostly used as a marketing vehicle for developer tools companies. Um, and there's not as many developer tools companies as, as I would personally expect there to be. Okay. Uh, think that uh, part of it may be that the the large cloud platforms like uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Google have really done a great job of building all sorts of, you know, a, comp- a very comprehensive platform with a ton of APIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they all employ large developer, excuse me, uh, developer marketing teams. Um, and so to go back to your original question, um, like what, how would the world be different? I mean, I think that it's just that developer evangelism is calling, like giving a name to what already happens okay. where companies talk about their API. They talk about their, you know, their, um, their products and services. I mean, it's actually, I think what's interesting is like you look at companies like Twilio that have pretty much since the start of the company had developer evangelism. We have developers who go out to hackathons, conferences, uh, meetups and work with other developers, whether they're building with Twilio or not. Um, and just like basically get awareness of Twilio up and then help developers when they're like, Hey, I'm trying to build like two factor authentication into my application. And I can't get this, like this thing working, or I have to hit this edge case or something. And having developer evangelists is like, in some ways it's like part of your job is like 
awareness, but it's also supporting developers who are maybe struggling or having trouble with your APIs. Um, and then there's companies like, like DigitalOcean, which have essentially never really had developer evangelism. They've sort they've hired a few recently, um, but that like they've focused more on their documentation and their tutorials. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, like they have developer evangelism, but it's all done through content. Okay. Uh, they just, you know, I don't think they would, developer evangelism is like sort of the, a bucket term for a lot of marketing, developer marketing strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't have, I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to have traditional non-developers try to do marketing to developers because they'll, they're not speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. or they, they emphasize things that aren't important to developers. Um, and actually can, uh, turn developers off. Uh, like it's like, Oh, those, that company doesn't know what they're doing because mm. their messaging is totally wrong. Um, so yeah, I think developer mark evangelism just kind of gives a, a name to a set of activities, um, of helping developers, um, that basically falls under developer marketing. And I think developer marketing would exist without developer evangelism, but developer evangelism is a, you know, sort of a very visible way of looking at uh, these marketing activities. Okay. Yeah. I'll take that. Uh, what wisdom would you give to someone that wants to begin giving technical talks? I know you have experienced doing this at uh, some PyCons, right? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. I've, I, it's, I actually don't uh, speak as much as I used to just because I, I tend to focus more on the, um, the, the writing side of things, it's just kind okay. of been my, my excitement lately, but I've spoken at PyCon and, and EuroPython, um, DjangoCon uh, a few years, and um, I've had just, I don't know, great opportunities to, to do that um, and just try to teach other developers what I've, what I've learned. And I think that's the main thing, the piece of advice is like, it's really, it really comes down to teaching other developers what you've learned through generally hard lessons. Hmm. Um, and being very specific about it, uh, the best technical talks I've ever seen have been the ones that uh, very specifically define the problem and give a you know clear solution, uh, and maybe also talk about some things that didn't solve the problem. Like that is incredibly valuable. The the, the talks I find that are really kind of useless is uh, talks that uh, you know broadly try to define a category and vaguely sort of like talk about things, but never really give any details. Um, so I, I generally recommend people give details on solving problems that they themselves have solved and have you know, really thought hard about. Um, and then the other thing is just like people want to give technical talks. Like I would do it at like your local meetup versus saying like, Oh, I want to speak at PyCon or I want to speak at, you know, some major conference. It's like, you know, if that's your first time on stage, <laughs> you haven't had a chance to like polish and rehearse and get feedback on your talk. So it, like every time I give a talk, that's like the first time I've given a talk at a large conference. Like I don't feel very good about it. Mm -hmm. I haven't had time to get feedback from people. Like I want to know what I, what was good, what was bad and what needs to be improved. So yeah, those two things speak about stuff that you know about, give details about it. And then the second thing is just like work your way up. Um, it's not like putting in your time. It's like, work on a talk, make it better over time. And that way, when you're on stage in front of, you know, hundreds of people, you're going to feel confident that like something that's really useful. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love the 
part that you were talking about, like it needs to be maybe a little messy too. Like it can't, you need to talk about like the challenges and the mistakes and kind of give some color around that. And I kind of want to go a little deeper on that because uh, there was some piece that you had written where you were talking about um, mistakes, basically how important they are to growth, but there's kind of like not always a safe place to make mistakes. And so um, I was wondering if you could tell me more about like, where is the safest place to make mistakes if there is such a thing <laughs> and uh, or, or, you know, like creating that sort of environment, that sort of thing. And then I loved like the database story that, that you sent in that link uh, drop, dropping the database on accident. So yeah, just if you could just kind of share with me a little bit about. Um, yeah. Well, I don't up. recommend making mistakes in production. Uh, yes. Like on purpose. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly was at a consulting client of mine and dropped their production database like totally on accident. I was trying to drop a test. There was a misconfiguration in the story that I sent, and hopefully you can send out the link. Uh, in the story, so like a test web application was pointing to a production database. And so there was two web applications pointing to a production database. Uh, and that was a problem. So I was trying to reconfigure everything dropping and I dropped the, um, I dropped the, I tried to drop the test database and ended up dropping the production database. Uh, and that was, that was not a great situation. Um, as far as like making, uh, sorry, are you still there? Uh, yeah, I'm here. It was, it was kind of cutting out there for a second. I think yeah, uh, it looks like the connection might be a little bit. Let's see here. Looks, looks better now. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, there's basically a misconfiguration with the test and the production databases. I went to drop the test database, uh, had two SSH connections open, one to test, one to prod. And I dropped the prod one. And so the test one, Yikes. um, Unfortunately, there were backups. Mm -hmm. so we were able to restore for backup, no permanent damage done. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as like making mistakes, I don't know, like um, it depends on like what you're working on. Like what I, in some ways it goes back to what I was saying with like, don't try to speak at a large conference first, like speak at a meetup because the stakes are a lot lower. Like chances are you're going to be in a group of, or maybe even before that, like speak, like if you're at work, and you're like, hey, like, does, do people want to do like a brown bag lunch? And I'll just give this talk that I want to work on. Mm -hmm. uh, you got five people in the room that are all uh, people that, you know, you're, you know, uh, that's going to be much lower stakes. Like, so when you say stuff and you like screw up or you like don't know what you want to say, it doesn't matter. Like you're in front of people, you know, mm -hmm. so you know that you, you know, that's something you need to improve for when you give the talk at the meetup at a you know regional conference, a large conference, like each, each step of the process, you're going to be fixing things along the way. Um, so it's not so much like safe versus unsafe. I think there's just like a spectrum. It's like, uh, you know, there's a, from uh, on, when you start out, if you're not confident in yourself, like don't put yourself, I mean, everyone's different. Maybe some people, maybe some people thrive in knowing that they're going to be in like a, really stressful situation. Some people are like that. I'm not really like that. I like to build up over time. Mm -hmm. Like I like to, you know, have an opportunity to kind of like tweak things and work on them. And that's usually what I recommend for people. If you're not that confident in something, if like just find an environment where 
um, you're among friends essentially or colleagues, uh, assuming you work in like you have a healthy work environment. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, practice from from there and build up uh, to the point where you want to be. Um, so uh, and also too like I think when it comes to like if you're coding. Um, it's okay to code in a private repository. You know, not everything needs to be open source. Um, so that's like in what I consider to be like a safer spot than, um, you know, trying to put your work out there as like an open source project to start out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Just basically know yourself, be incremental, uh, kind of create the space. That's kind of what I'm pulling out of, pulling out of what you're saying there. Um, yeah. So, as far as, so as far as the use cases, uh, one of the benefits I understand of your job is you kind of you, you create these building blocks, and then you get to see developers create solutions with these, and then six or twelve months later, you're seeing kind of patterns emerge with how your building blocks are being used. And I love that concept because I am a Lego enthusiast at heart, but um, I was curious, like you know, what kind of patterns are you seeing from the developers you support right now? Oh yeah, sure. So, well, I'll say that like, I think the classic pattern is when Twilio first came out, it was a voice API. Uh, and then we launched like, a couple years later, like an SMS API. So sending text messages and mm -hmm. it was kind of like generic, like, you know, send text messages, messages, send and receive text messages and didn't necessarily have a clear understanding of what people were going to use it for. Uh, and so developers started building two-factor authentication uh, because they needed, you know, they're they're trying to add two-factor authentication to their applications and mm -hmm. part of 2FA, uh, you know, SMS is a big part of 2FA, especially a few years ago before there were, you know, other over-the-top applications that could help you with that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you just sometimes see developers build, um, if, you, if you can create a relatively generic API that's easy to use, create documentation, um, you'll often see people build stuff over and over again. And then with that, you can take that use case uh, and build like kind of a new product on top that says like, Hey, instead of like building all the low level stuff and worrying about the edge cases, like here's uh, in Twilio's case, like Authy and Authy takes care of the, the edge cases. Like if you, here it is super easy, drop it in two lines of code, boom, you don't have to worry about it versus writing everything yourself, writing the verification, you know, verification code. Um, and so I think that's really where um, the the building blocks mindset comes in, especially with like developer tools. So uh, what I see now currently is like people are building all sorts of cool uh, applications with like Twilio Wireless, which is the SIM card that that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that really the the hard part there is just it's still unclear to me the path for most developers from like building you know sort of a aside project hack to taking something all the way to production. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's like, I think there's going to be a lot more, there are already companies that focus on that. It's like, um, and I think as they get, they'll get larger as developers are able to, you know, if you can create a hardware project on the weekend and deploy it as, you know, uh, get it built as a production application or production hardware. Um, that to me is like kind of, changes everything. And so I think my guess is that there will be certain use cases where, uh, as we were talking about like the oil, oil and gas industry, like 
you know, there's going to be certain use cases that pop up in that industry and you'll see them over and over again. And it's like, well, okay, then somebody should either start a, somebody should start a company just around building that so they can do it more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's just kind of the model. I don't know like what is, I think I see a lot of experimentation with the, the different, um, APIs that we have. Um, but it takes time to figure out like what is really going to stick and what's kind of just like, you know, temporary thing. Um, you know, an example of like a sort of a temporary one would be like, um, some developers built a group messaging application called GroupMe several years ago with Twilio APIs and they like scaled that up, became super popular. It was bought by Skype, um, for like millions of dollars and like group messaging is not really like a problem anymore because the messaging applications have caught up to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, that's where you just don't, you don't know, like something could be popular today, but it's not really a problem a year from now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, uh, in this segment, I just kind of wanted to switch gears and kind of go more into like, you know, you're big on family. Like anytime you get away from, like, if you're not working, it's basically like skilling up or spending time with your family. Like, how do you, what sort of advice do you have for people that are balancing like, and you've got all these side, side projects like full stack Python, you know, how are you balancing that? Yeah. Well, I think that uh, folks who run into problems with like burnout and stuff, they're just not giving, I don't have necessarily a simple answer. Everyone's situations are different. But to me, I've always found people don't give themselves enough uh, wiggle room. Like they don't leave any margin for error. So they're, you know, burning as hot as possible on professional life. And they're trying to like do a million things in their personal life. And it's like, just suddenly they like, then something un unexpected happens and they're just completely, you know, they don't have the capacity to handle everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always try to leave more room for error than I ever think is going to be necessary. Like whether that's financially or, uh, you know, professionally, like just, um, or free time. It's just like, leave myself more free time than I think I'm going to need because, oh, here's like something breaks and I got to spend time to go research it and it cuts into your free time. Mm -hmm. Well, you only have like 30 minutes a day of free time that you've sort of scheduled out you don't have any free time anymore. And like, you need that. You need time to, for yourself just to like do nothing or just like you know, sit around. Like that's important to give yourself some rest. So uh, for me, it's just making sure that I'm very careful about, about how I'm, uh, you know, the commitments I'm taking on. Um, the, the flip side to that is like, you always want to make progress. And so I believe strongly in working on, if I care about something, I work on it every single day. So full stack Python, I work on it every single day. And if mm -hmm. I don't work on it, um, it's sort of like a, a special exception. Like I happen to like be like next week I'm working, you know, nonstop from the minute I wake up till the minute I go to sleep, <laughs> you know, five, five days straight while we have our conference. That's yeah. fine. And maybe I still, right before I go to bed, I, you know, change one thing and I like commit, add, commit, push the commit. Uh, and that's like my, my thing for the day, but like that same thing with like working out weightlifting. Um, mm -hmm. it's like, you can make so much progress if you just work on stuff every single day. Um, and the exception should be like that you, you don't do something like for a lot of folks to like, Oh, well I'm going to work on it like five hours. weekend. it's like that five hours never hap happens because other stuff comes up and mm -hmm. then you've literally not made any progress that week. Whereas if you just take five minutes a day, you're going to make a lot of progress. 
uh, you know, you can't do that with everything. Sometimes you need to be focused on things, but uh, mm -hmm. that's generally, I've, I've often found that like, also if you really need to focus on something and you can spend five minutes a day, it's going to be on top, you know, it's going to be in your short-term memory when you you go and you actually have two hours to go work on it. You're going to be much more efficient than mm -hmm. if you're just spinning it up and you're like, what did I do? What did I do last month? I, that's the last time I worked on this. So those are the, those are the two big things is, you know, understanding your commitments, leave a lot of room for error in your, you know, the amount of time that you have for things. Uh, and then just work on stuff daily. Um, and if you can do that, then you're going to make a lot of progress over time and you're not going to be too stressed out about things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love that. I, it kind of reminds me of how delusional I am with my own time, like thinking I can get something done in uh, one day and it turns into like seven days or something like that. So yeah, I can respect that. That's sure. And I, I still do, I still do the same thing. I still have the same problems. I don't, you know, but I, you got to learn from it and say like, how do I avoid this in the future? It's like, yeah. just being careful. No, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, regarding like vacations, I know you had, you had mentioned, um, like when you do these things, like it's really like a recharging session for you. Is there any sort of uh, like, how, how do you get a good recharge? I guess. Uh, well, funny enough, I like when I'm, so our last vacation uh, was a few months ago. My wife and I went to Paris uh, for nice. like a long weekend and honestly, like just mixing in different activities I, it's for for me like a lot of walking a lot of good eating I, but i also really like reading and writing mm -hmm. uh I like nothing better than to like sit in a coffee shop and like read and and i i write i actually get a lot of like full stack python work done um to me that's actually super relaxing because i okay. can cut out i can cut out everything else right like okay. you're just just on one thing mm -hmm. um and, and i don't like try to force it it's like, if I feel like doing it, great. If I don't feel like doing it, like I'll, I won't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's actually like super, super relaxing. Um, but I don't know. It's just about knowing yourself. Like, it's almost like you can't like give people advice on like how to relax because everyone's kind of different. Uh, I, I will, the only advice that I think I have is like, you got to know yourself because I feel like a lot of people try to relax and they're like, Oh, I want to relax in a certain way. It's mm -hmm. like, maybe you're not like that. Mm -hmm. like maybe yourself some slack and be like what do i feel like i want to do mm -hmm. i personally don't like white water rafting i've gone white water rafting before <laughs> I, not it's not relaxing me it's super stressful i would not want to go on a vacation and mm -hmm. do white water rafting so i would never make that something that like is my vacation and i i don't know i feel like some people do the equivalent of like oh i really want to learn how to code on my vacation and actually like that's super stressful to them it's the equivalent of white water rafting for some mm -hmm. people don't do that to yourself <laughs> fair enough i'll take that that's awesome uh so what are what are the big um yeah our time is we're burning through our time here so i'm gonna i had some other notes but i'm just gonna keep uh hitting the, the high points i guess here so what are the the big needs of full stack python right now oh the big need mm -hmm. uh you know i think there's a couple of areas. One is just like there's, there's pages um, that just don't have like a ton of, a uh, ton of content um, because either I haven't worked with the project extensively mm -hmm. uh, or just, um, you know, I worked with it a few years ago and I haven't done a lot with it. So I don't have a ton to add. I try to only write about things that I 
am knowledgeable about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I force myself to like learn how to use a project. Um, but like, for example, working with Python on windows is like, just not like one of my areas of expertise. So if like someone does a pull request on the windows page on the windows page of full stack Python, um, like I love that stuff um, because it helps me to fill in content that otherwise I would not get to potentially ever. Mm -hmm. um, first thing is just like filling in areas where people um, have their own expertise. Um, the second thing is just like, I really love when people give me little like pull requests that are like just fixing a typo or something tiny because I don't catch it. I, I just crossed 200,000 words on full site Python. Like it, even with the tools that I have to like sort of like automate trying to find you know, various, uh, typos and problems. Like I just don't, I don't have, it's not possible for me to keep up with everything. Mm -hmm. so every little pull request, every little issue request an email, um, like, Hey, this is a typo or this is, you know, this didn't make sense. Like that's super helpful to me. Uh, even, yeah, even like larger things like this sentence just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, what does this mean? Like, okay. Awesome. Because there's scale in that. Like, that's the thing that I think is so exciting is like, if I fix that problem for that one person, uh, but it's online and full stack Python is like, you know, got pretty good traffic. Like it's going to help other people. Right. So to me, that's like, those are a couple areas that are super helpful. One is people's expertise. And two is just like pointing out things that just don't make sense or typos, little errors to fix. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. I, uh, I'll just throw this in here right now. Cause like, I really enjoyed the uh, Ansible training that you did. Um, awesome. I was, yeah, I was able to take that and like go back to work the next day type thing and, and Very. turn some knobs and kind of solve some problems that we were having there. And yeah, so I was kind of curious in, I know you did the entrepreneurial, uh, course with Mike Kennedy. Um, I've worked through part of that. That's like a serious, <laughs> like that's like A to Z, right? Like, uh, yeah. So the big difference in the two courses is like the Ansible course is like pretty quick. I mean, like it's not. I don't know. I think it's like just a little over three hours. Mm -hmm. The entrepreneur's course is like 20. Yeah. It's the challenge. There is like Mike and I put out an outline for the entrepreneur's course. And then like, as we were working on it, we just realized like, Oh wow, there's like actually this whole other subject. Like, Oh, we got to cover like SEO. We got to cover, you know, email marketing. Like there was just so much that we tried to like fit in there. And I think if we had to do it again, we probably would have split it into like, maybe like the technical side and like the slightly less technical side. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't know exactly how it would have shaken out. I think I'm really, I'm really proud of like how it all came together, but it is a, it is a lot of material to cover. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The Ansible course is like, I use Ansible like all the time. I still make a lot of stupid mistakes. So I'm just going to like make all the mistakes because if you're working with the tool, you're also going to make them and it, it's actually like, I feel like my hypothesis was like, it's actually super helpful to like see somebody who works with the tool. Like I've worked with that tool for like six years now. I still make all these dumb mistakes. Like, let me just show you like me making those mistakes. And then you will not feel weird about the fact that you always run into them as well. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was part of it. And then just like trying to explain things at like a reasonable level without getting too like the problem, actually the biggest problem with creating the answer course was like, there was just a lot of stuff that I felt like I kind of left out. Um, and not to say that like it, you know, you can't like, the, I was just like, what's, what is the, not the bare minimum, but mostly the minimum that you need just to be productive with the tool. Right. 
And if I can inspire people to like really enjoy using the tool, they'll, they'll be able to figure out the rest. Like there's a lot of other resources out there, but the problem is if you like have a course that is 20 hours for learning Ansible, you may never learn Ansible. Right. Cause you're never going to get past that first hour. Whereas yeah. if you get, if you get through the first hour with the intro to Ansible course that I created, you're a third of the way done through the course. Mm -hmm. You could probably finish it. Yeah. It's, there's something to be said for being able to go full circle, like in an afternoon type thing. Yeah, for sure. So I, I really appreciate that. And actually I was curious, like, are you going to be, you got anything else uh, cooking on the training side or are you focusing more on the full stack co uh, Python content right now? What's your, what do you think? I've just been, it's whatever I'm excited about. I mean, mostly I'm mm -hmm. working on fullstackpython.com. Um, I'm like been more slowly than I would like, but I'm trying to get this, complete rewrite of my deployments book out. Okay. Um, that's just been for better or worse. It's been uh, sort of like a frustrating slog because um, it's, it's just the tooling. Uh, there's like constantly new updates and, and, um, and that's fine. Like it's great that there's so many updates to tools, mm -hmm. but it's like the, the intersection of the updates between Ubuntu, Ansible, uh, you know, all the packages that you need to install to do a deployment like suddenly like everything breaks and it's like <laughs> you have to update almost everything that mm -hmm. goes along. I can see why people don't actually, people tend, authors tend to write about or create videos on one specific tool because then you just have to worry about the updates to that tool. But if you are writing about a topic and it, were, it takes 10 tools, it's not just about the updates to each of those tools. It's also about the interaction mm -hmm. of tools like the the like uh when i first wrote the deployments book it was on like ubuntu like 14.04 well people were like hey i'm just going to use you know 16.04 it should be the same right it's like no it's completely different like and that i hate like especially if you're like a fairly new developer like you don't realize that mm -hmm. like, i'm going to use the latest version and then everything breaks and you're frustrated i can't get this thing to work it's like you actually needed to use exactly what was spelled out in the book even though you know, it's not the exact latest and greatest update. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the hardest part about writing a book on a topic that spans a lot of tools that are constantly updated um, with backwards breaking changes versus you know, just writing about one single tool. Yeah, that's, I mean, just me personally, I would rather have something that kind of gave me the whole picture that way. Cause right. like you can build toy things all day long, but it's like, I want to know how this thing and this thing and this thing work together and so I guess with that, the consequences, now you have the system that you're maintaining in a book and right. that's, uh, man, I, uh, if there was an easy way around it, I guess, I guess that's what we're, we're looking for. I really appreciate that sort of training though. That's just my, yeah, it's my favorite too. No, no uh, doubt. I like to have a purpose for like, I don't like to just learn a tool for the sake of learning a tool. I like to have mm -hmm. a purpose for why I'm learning something, but it is harder to, uh, to keep it up to date in that case. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I have like a little lightning round for you and yeah, then, uh, and then we can do our, uh, okay, cool. So, uh, what is the best video game ever made? Wow. Uh, Witcher three, Witcher three. Excellent. <laughs> 4k awesome. on PC. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And what are kind of some theme, a theme in the Python community that you're excited about right now. And then one theme that you think could kind of like use some improvement. Yeah. 
Uh, well, so I'm about to hire a Python developer for uh, my team, uh, looking to open a job rec soon. And the thing I'm most excited about is the uh, the incredible uh, diversity and inclusion that has um, really transpired in the Python community versus other communities. Mm-hmm. Um, to you know, really want to create a team of the best folks possible, um, knowing that that spans. Um, kind of like everyone that's out there is just like not every programming language is like that. Not every programming culture is like that. So I think that the efforts that have been made there, I know they've been really difficult. A lot of people have worked really hard on them in the Python community, but mm-hmm. it really does matter. And it's fantastic when you are, an, you know, an employer that is hiring folks um, to be able to see all of the, all, everyone who is, you know, sort of included in, in uh, the potential hiring pool. Um, the the areas of improvement, uh, you know, um, you know, everyone's like, oh, Python packaging is like terrible. I don't think it's that bad. Uh, I I mean, I you know, and a couple of years ago, I would have said, you know, the Python two to Python three transition. I feel like we're mostly past that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I'm generally pretty happy with the Python ecosystem. Uh, I do wish that there was. Um, there's a little part of me that wishes that Apple had gone with Python, like as the language for building iOS applications rather than creating Swift. Um, I think there's a lot to like about Swift, but I really wish that like Python was kind of the thing for building mobile applications. But I also don't think that like the community has to be everyone to everything to everyone. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, that was my lightning round for you. And uh, I was wondering where, what is the call to action for folks from this point forward, reaching out to you, finding, finding your products? Uh, I think it's mostly like going to fullstackpython.com uh, and fullstackpython.com and clicking uh, on the all topics page, the little link in the, in the nav bar or just going to the table of contents. Uh, I mean, to me, knowing what's not on there would be amazing. There's so much about the Python ecosystem that I kind of want to still, you know, help other developers to learn. So when people go on that all topics table of contents page, if there's like a glaringly obvious missing piece, mm-hmm. like I want to know about that. Like they can just send me an email uh, or open an issue on the um, the open source repository. Uh, like that helps me to understand like where I can put effort to help people. Um, okay. Yeah, that would be that'd be my call to action. That's super, super helpful to me. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, did we leave anything off the table that we uh, were talking about today? Any kind of like holes we need to fill in or you feel you feel pretty good? Uh, all the topics we covered? No, I think I think that's great. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, Matt McKay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ben.